How many of you watch Downton Abbey? Raise your hand. It's all the rage on PBS. One thing I enjoy about it is the inner workings of the household staff and their various roles and responsibilities. Lord Grantham treats the estate as if it were something entrusted to him for a period of time. He's one in a long line of lords responsible for the estate. There were lords before him. Hopefully, if he manages well, there will be lords after him. In fact, one of the subplots was that he was too old-fashioned, too close-minded, and it led to the near demise of the estate due to his poor stewardship. Sorry, I should have said spoiler alert for those of you who are just getting caught up. Man, that car crash. But anyway, in our text, (laughs) in verse 4, Paul describes the gospel as something that had been entrusted to he and his companions. From the particular word he chose, his readers would have understood that he was comparing himself to a steward, the chief servant in a great household. Elsewhere in the New Testament, we are told that all of us as believers in Jesus Christ are considered stewards. The gospel then is a trust from the Lord entrusted not to one or a few, but to every servant of the Lord. Since it has been entrusted to you and to us, we want to manage it well. By the way, I'm laughing because there's a typo in my study here. And uh, it's like a cult thing. It says, I I wrote down elsewhere in the New Testament's plural, as if there's more than one. So anyway, if you read that, uh, it's not enough coffee. But anyway, as we work through verses 1 through 6, you'll be given some principles for good stewardship of the gospel. You're going to notice that most of these opening verses are stated negatively. They describe what Paul and his companions did not do when they were among the Thessalonians. It seems that Paul was under a personal attack in the church there. Timothy, who had just returned from there, reported that the opponents of the gospel were circulating slanderous charges against Paul and the work that he established. Attack the messenger and you can undermine the message was their uh, strategy. One of the reasons for writing this letter was to answer these attacks, and Paul did it by pointing to his faithful handling of the gospel. You know, I was thinking about that. Normally, Christians advise you, if you're attacked, to not defend yourself. Let the Lord defend you. It always sounds like the most spiritual option, but you really need to be led by the Lord. In this case, Paul was led to defend himself for the sake of the gospel not being disparaged. And, and so sometimes things, they really, they sound spiritual. You know, yeah, I would never think of defending myself. And then you think, well, you know, Paul defended himself quite often, uh, but it was for the sake of the gospel. And his defense, especially in this case, was to simply remind the Thessalonians what they already knew about his time with them. It was a soft defense. Other times, however, Paul had stronger words for the enemies of the gospel. Also forgot to do something before we started. Hi, little Jean. How are you? Papa says hi. Say hi to Zeke. Bye-bye. Anyway, (laughs) we can organize our thoughts around four words. And first, we're going to look at your manner in verses 1 and 2. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God 
in much conflict. Suffered and spitefully treated at Philippi was an understatement. Suffered refers to the physical portion of the suffering. Paul and Silas had been publicly flogged and then thrown into prison with at least their feet in the stocks, maybe feet and hands. Spitefully treated means they were shamed, arrested on a false charge, stripped of their clothes naked to be beaten publicly, all of this without the due process of Roman law as Roman citizens. Coming to Thessalonica, you might think they would be a little more cautious how they preach the gospel, but Paul said they were not. He said, our coming is not in vain, and he meant it was not empty or watered down from fear. Instead, he said they were bold in God to speak the gospel of God. They were bold even though there was much conflict. There were no less external dangers in Thessalonica. In fact, they were forced out of the city after only about three weeks of ministry. Whenever you share the gospel, you run the risk of shame and or suffering. How desperately, therefore, do we need the emboldening of God the Holy Spirit? That, that's, the, that's the agent here. This is the person here who gets the credit, not Paul. Uh, Paul was born along by the Spirit of God. He could do no other than share the gospel because of the boldness of the Holy Spirit within him. And uh, when we think in terms of uh, uh, sharing the gospel and, and the uh, possible consequences, it is the internal boldness of the Holy Spirit that is going to carry us through. Uh, the second thing we can look at here, not just your manner but your message, in verse 3, he says, for our exhortation did not come from error. Exhortation is his way of referring to their entire message. They were among non-believers, urging them to repent and receive Jesus Christ as their Savior. They were offering them eternal life. And this message didn't come from any error. It is the truth. The gospel is God's truth. Paul's attackers probably tried to lump him in with other traveling religious leaders and philosophers. His message, however, was truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one is saved by God except through his death and resurrection. The message, he said, is the gospel of God, meaning that it originates with God. It's his message. You're only the messenger. Uh, so people sometimes say, well, you know, there's all these religions. There's Christianity and Buddhism and Mormonism and all, you know, all the various religions. And, and they act as if Christianity started in the first century with Jesus Christ, that a, a man named Jesus was born and we don't know that much about him, but he was maybe a great teacher or a philosopher, and then they created a religion around him. And we need to remember that God started Christianity before the foundations of the world. And in the Garden of Eden, he preached Christ to Adam and Eve. He said, uh, I'm going to come, and I'm going to uh, be born of a woman. I'm, uh, I'm going to crush the serpent's head, and he's going to bruise my heel. I'm going to show you what that's going to be like as I slay these animals, probably lambs, and provide their skins for you. And so, the God, it, you know, Christianity is not a religion. It's God's way of reconciling a lost human race. Everything else is a religion. They all, that, that should be a... a a problem for people when I think, well, yeah, I can trace the origins of, of Mormonism or Buddhism or Confucianism or they, I, they did start with some guy who's now dead and buried and rotting in the ground as opposed to the gospel of God and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
you must be faithful to the message. That's all that Paul was saying is that we have a me- we're messengers, we have a message, we're just going to deliver the message. The encouragement of Revelation 22, 18, and 19 is appropriate. If any man shall add to the words of this book, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life. Probably mostly talking about the book of the Revelation, but certainly applicable to the whole Bible. And, um, uh, you know, I think sometimes we make our sharing unnecessarily complicated and difficult I think we try to share doctrines, we try to share perspectives, we try to share uh, our favorite topics, when really I think God just wants us to share the Word of God. You know, I mean, we can, we can give commentary on it, but it doesn't need our opinion. Uh, people need to hear the Word. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And, um, you know, the, the word has power. And Paul said, we came, we shared the word. Other places, Paul is criticized for not being a very dynamic preacher. He was no Apollos. He probably, you know, didn't have a three-point message. He didn't start with a catchy introduction. He wasn't a joke teller. And he just got right to the heart of the message. And, and um, uh, so sometimes I think we, uh, you know, I'm not criticizing anybody, but I, I think we have a tendency to try and be more articulate than we need to be. Just let God's word speak for itself and, and, and let it out. Be faithful to the message. Then there's your motives. Again, in verse 3, for our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness. Now, uncleanness refers to Paul's motives for bringing them the gospel. For example, it could refer to impure physical motives. Most of the popular religions in the first century promoted and praised a certain brand of sexual immorality. Traveling ministers of these false religions taught that there was spiritual maturity in premarital and extramarital sex. Many of the temples were funded by the services of temple prostitutes. The so-called ministers themselves often convinced their female followers to have sex with them. It was easy to attack Paul in a similar way by saying his motives for preaching the gospel were probably impure on some level. I mean, this is the kind of traveling minister that they were used to from the cults and the pagan religions. And so when Paul came into town, you have to understand nobody knew really what Christianity was about in Thessalonica. And Paul comes into town and is sharing for the first time. And and those who were on the outside probably thought, well, he's just another charlatan. You know, we, we tend to lump people into categories, don't we? We, we, um, we do it with homeless people. We do it with people carrying sandwich board signs. We do it in lots of different ways. Um, my, bless his heart, he's, he's no longer with us, but my dad was famous for this. I mean, he, he would look at a person and he could just, you know... And if we were in Las Vegas, I got a kick out of this. Maybe you won't, but um, it, it'll give you an insight into why I'm twisted. Um, but uh, we would go to, we'd have to go, my dad had a little boat, a 24-foot boat out in Lake Mead. Um, and so we would ha- go through uh, Las Vegas and um, we'd be driving through Las Vegas and he was trying to teach me, you know, as a young man to watch out for certain things. And he would point out and he says, see, see that woman over there? And I say, yeah, and that's a prostitute. I go, well, really, she has like four kids in a stroller. He goes, yeah, she's just, that's just a show to throw the cops off. Those, those, those kids aren't hers. That they're just, they're all part of it and stuff. And I thought, okay, you know, so uh, <clears throat> anyway, so he had a way of just, you know, 
I could ju- he could just spot a person and immediately categorize them, you know. Homeless people, they're all millionaires. I don't know if you knew this or not, but every homeless person is a millionaire uh, or a deadbeat that doesn't want to work or they're in that, they choose to be, a, you know, that way and stuff. So we do. And so these people would say, oh, Paul, that guy, that Christian guy, yeah, he's just another deadbeat minister. Uh, and so Paul says, no, my motives were different. And he answered the attack by simply pointing out it wasn't true. He could point out it wasn't true because it wasn't true. That sounds stupid, but it reminds you to have the right motive so that when you are attacked, you can honestly say, yeah, that's not true. But that, my motive for, for that was, uh-oh. That's what happens with a Windows computer. Hey, <laughs> A Christian's character is the whole capital he has for carrying on his business. In most other callings, a man may go on no matter what his character is, provided his balance at the bank is on the right side. But a Christian who has lost his character has lost everything. The missionary martyr Jim Elliott wrote this in his journal. In spiritual work, if nowhere else, the character of the worker decides the quality of his work. Shelley and Byron may be moral freelancers and still write good poetry. Wagner may be lecherous and still produce fine music, but it cannot be so in any work for God. Paul could refer to his own character and manner of living for proof of what he was saying to the Thessalonians. Nine times over in his first epistle, he says, you know, referring to the Thessalonians' firsthand observation of Paul's private as well as public life. Paul went to Thessalonica and lived a life that more than illustrated what he preached, It went beyond illustration to convincing proof. No wonder so much work in the kingdom is shoddy. Look at the moral character of the workers. And then he talks about methods in verses 3 through 6. For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit, but... Uh, we have been approved, as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. Several words in these verses describe methods of ministry Paul did not use. First of all, deceit. The word is used of trying to catch fish with a baited hook. In other words, Paul didn't try to lure anyone to Jesus under false pretenses. He didn't use flattering words. I once read that a flatterer is someone who manipulates rather than communicates. It can also refer to a style of oratory that seeks to gain something from the hearers. Flattery is a form of lying and has no place in the gospel. He did not use a cloak of covetousness. Preaching the gospel was not and should never be a means for getting rich. And he did not seek glory from men. This means he had no personal ambitions. He did not see the gospel as a means to further his reputation or expand his influence as a minister. Paul was not building a religious empire or franchise. He was pure in his uh, methods, simply going forward with the word of God Uh, meeting people, leaving Christians where there were no Christians before. Paul was an apostle with incredible spiritual authority. He might have made demands, he says, but instead he conducted himself in a manner more worthy of the love of Jesus Christ. We read within these verses, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. That's in verse 4. And so let's talk 
a little bit about self-analysis. God tests our hearts has the idea that you present your heart to God for testing. Test refers to both a constant and a continuing process of testing. There's a long tradition in the Bible of asking God to test your heart, to review your life and to reveal what is there. Psalm 139, 23, and 24, probably the most famous section. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Commenting on those verses, D.L. Moody once said, the great trouble is that people search themselves and do not ask God's aid. We want to ask God to come to us with his searching power that his heart, or excuse me, that our hearts may be bared. I cannot conduct an adequate search of my own heart. I don't know myself as well as God knows me. I need him to show me things both good and not so good. And yes, I believe that God really can show us good things about our lives uh, as well as bad. You know, when you talk about heart searching, everybody's like, oh, yeah. It's all that stuff I have in that closet that I refuse to turn over to God. God's just going to, damn. I told you to get rid of that. Damn, you know, and we're all, and, and there's a place for that. That's what we think of. But Jeremiah 17.10, right after Jeremiah said that the heart was deceitful and wicked, he said, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. We sometimes default to thinking God only shows us more and more sin, but he can show us fruit too. And maybe that's what you need tonight. Maybe God needs to show you fruit that only he could have produced in your heart and life. There are times in all of our lives, probably more than we'd like to admit, and it maybe it should be every day, when we need God to show us the joy of his salvation. When, when we just come up short and he says, you know, um, you know, once you were blind, but now you see. The whole course of your life was changed in a moment when you trusted my son as your savior. And, you know, not that, you know, God has given you a pat on the back or anything, but just the reality of God saying, hey, I'm, I'm doing a complete work in you. Yeah, there's a lot of rough edges. There's a lot of, of areas of your life, things that you don't even know about yourself where we haven't gotten to yet. Uh, but we're also making some progress. Uh, you're, you're not the person that you once were. And um, so let's, let's let the Lord do both of those. <clears throat> How does God search my heart? There's really very little about the mechanics of it unless you want to go medieval and get mystical. We don't. All I can suggest is that you get alone with God and give him consent to reveal things to you that he knows and sees, but you don't. And some of those, maybe a lot of them, they're going to be good. Realize, too, that this is constant, meaning even when I'm not alone with God, he can break into my reality to show me something. And uh, I think we need to be all the time listening for God to be doing that or reviewing uh, things uh, that are happening in our lives as God desires to speak to us. Deuteronomy 8.2 is an interesting verse. It says, you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. This is more God testing me in the everyday when my actions and reactions give away what is in my heart. My circumstances are like pop quizzes in school. You, ever, you ever remember the pop quiz? Gotta hate the pop quiz. It, it's just, you know, 
You, you don't study for it. You're not ready for it, unless you were a you know tremendous student like I was <coughs> in college, but not so much in high school. Uh, you know, there was the pop quiz, which busted all of us that waited until the night before to read Cliff's notes on the thing, because you it, you know it showed the teacher you had no idea what book you were even in, you know, and stuff. And so God says, you know, I just. To the children of Israel, it says, 40 years in the wilderness, I watched you walk, and it was like one long test to see whether you were going to obey me, whether you were going to follow my commandments or not. I'll give you a preview of, of our Sunday morning study. Uh, it's, it, as we finish Jeremiah, he's going to contrast and compare Zedekiah and Jehoiachin. Um, one man refused to surrender to Nebuchadnezzar. The other did surrender to him. Um, both of them spent a long time in prison. Uh, Zedekiah, you know, he has his sons are killed in front of him, his eyes are put out, he's put in shackles and thrown in prison. Jehoiachin surrendered. He also spent 37 years in prison. But then afterwards, he was elevated to the king's table when a new administration took over and he had a pretty uh, fruitful end of his life. And, um, you know, sometimes you think, well, you know, what's the difference? Well, the difference is Jehoiachin was walking with God. It doesn't mean you're not going to be in some kind of a difficult circumstance. It doesn't mean that there isn't a testing going on. He happened to live at a time when God was judging the nation of Judah. And, I mean, that was a best-case scenario for a king. I mean, you know, when you were the king of a rival nation and you were defeated, it, it was... It was beheading time. I mean, it was, you know, you, you, you were happy to, to die fast. Uh, and so it was a, you know, a benefit that he was in prison, actually. And then later on, he is elevated. So the idea is that God is testing all the time. What's in your heart? Am I enough for you? And you think, wow, that's, gosh, you know, come on, God, that's kind of harsh. But we do that to each other and when we fall in love with people. We fall in love and you think, well, how much do you really love me? Do you love me more than the guys that you play racquetball with? And then why are you going to play racquetball? You need to give up racquetball. You know, that kind of a thing. And, and, and there's a jealousy to love. There, there should be. It is, there should be a jealousy to love and, and a, almost a testing quality of it. And you should be excited uh, if you're being tested because you want to show that person how much you love them. And so that's what God is like, testing me every day. And then, too, we have to have the awareness that one day we'll stand alone before the Lord, and there He's going to reveal and review our finished work as His stewards. He'll test it once and for all by fire, burning away that which is wood, hay, and stubble to reveal what is precious and will remain for eternity. And looking ahead to that glorious encounter really should keep you on task as His steward. We want to be the steward who is believing that His master is going to come back at any moment rather than an unfaithful steward who is slacking off. Uh, and the best way to do that is to believe in the, and understand the imminent rapture of the church and the coming of Jesus Christ for us. Amen? Amen.